Well, we're in Habakkuk today, as I've mentioned, and Habakkuk is like a super relevant book. So you'd think a book that was written like 2,600 years ago would be, how do you even use that? So different, such a different culture, such a different time in history. But as we enter into this book, what we see actually is Habakkuk asking the same kinds of questions that we ask today. So let me just kind of prove this point to you and also prove that I live in the same world that you do. So let's get a little audience participation going. I want to hear from like three or four of you. When you're out sharing your faith, you're talking about God, you're talking about Christianity, and you're interacting with non-Christians, with unbelievers. What would be in your mind the top one, two, or three questions or points of pushback that you get? What are the things that people say, I don't believe in God because of this, or I'm not comfortable with Christianity because of this, or what are some of the, the challenging questions they, they would ask you? So let me hear from you on this point. Okay, where, who said that? Okay, right at the back. So why does God allow suffering? Let's hear a couple more. Okay, because we're hypocrites, which we are. Yeah. Okay, all religions are the same. Okay, why does God allow people to go to hell? I'll, I'll take one more that I've never heard. Yeah. Okay, we're not inclusive enough. Okay, so these are great. So this just proves the point. You're living in the same world that I am because these are the exact same things that I hear. But what's interesting is both at the 9 o'clock service this morning and now at the 11.15 service, the very first response that I heard was the exact same. Why does God allow suffering? This is a, a monumental question. And it's one that I, I think about this question. You think about this question. Like, why is there so much evil in the world? Why are, why are there so many wars? I mean, if God is, is sovereign and he's loving and he's in control, like, why doesn't he just stop it? Why does he allow so much suffering and pain and horror? The kind of stuff you've experienced, but also things that people are experiencing around the world that are unheard of in Western culture. Why does God allow suffering? The, the, the answers to this question have created atheists and believers. People have, have run from faith. People have run from Christianity, from churches, because they have not adequately received an answer to the question, why does a good and mighty and all-powerful God, who is sovereign over all things, allow us to suffer? This is a very earthy, very practical, very modern and ancient question that so many of us wrestle with and so many of us aren't sure how to respond to when when an agnostic or an atheist or a member of another religion asks us this question what we discover when we read the word of god is that while language changes and culture changes and circumstances change all the time that people are people are people so we're going to go back in the bible 26 centuries and Habakkuk, this prophet of God, who was sent to declare God's truth to the people, kind of starts to, to speak to God. And he asks the questions that everybody's thinking about to God. And he receives some answers from God. And his primary question in this book, this big question is, why does a good God allow suffering? What do you say to that when, an, when a skeptic asks you? 
And to the believer who loves the Lord and experiences trials in their own life, we also would ask ourselves, why is the world so evil? Like, why is it getting wackier and wackier, weirder and weirder? Why is the world, why does the world seem at times to be out of control? I mean, we have education coming out the wazoo. We have thousands of years of human history behind us. Like, why is it that we have not got our act together as human beings? Why is the world so evil? So let's go to Habakkuk. And we'll wrestle with this question today. Why does God allow so much evil to flourish? This is essentially the question that Habakkuk poses to God in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. Now Habakkuk, by the way, is a Jewish prophet, probably living in Jerusalem, in the south of the nation. His name is not Jewish. It's actually Akkadian. So we don't know his where he's from, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, but it might be true that he was originally descended from the Akkadians in Mesopotamia, kind of to like the northeast of Israel. And maybe he was one of those foreigners and sojourners that God often speaks of, that, uh, whose ancestors came in and found the true God and, and were integrated into Jewish culture. Regardless, we don't know much about him, but we know that he worshiped the true and living God. He was a prophet to God's people. And he was prophesying in and around 612 BC. So just kind of keep this in mind. Last week, we finished up a study in Nahum. And we did Obadiah earlier than that. We did Jonah. A couple of those books talked about Nineveh. Remember Nineveh? The capital city of Assyria? A couple hundred years before, so follow the timeline, a couple hundred years before Habakkuk's prophesying, God's warning the northern nation, the 10 northern tribes of Israel, you better get your act to better, you better get your act together, you better stop rebelling against me, you better stop committing idolatry or I'm going to send an enemy to wipe you out. Well, they didn't listen. So the Assyrians come in, capital is Nineveh, in 722 BC and it's Gonzo for Israel, the northern 10, 10 tribes. Now, later on if you fast forward in 586 BC, the Babylonians, who had now become the global superpower, also known as the Chaldeans, they come and they capture the southern tribes called Judah, Judah and Benjamin, and take them into captivity. So we got 722, we got 586. Now, in between here is the date 612. So after the northern tribes are gone, before the southern tribes are gone, Habakkuk steps into the picture. And he's prophesying to God's people. But in this fascinating prophecy, he actually asks God to defend himself. Why do you allow your righteous people, your holy nation, speaking of Judah, to suffer? Very real question. Now, I'm just going to kind of spill the beans a little bit because we need to work through the whole book to fully answer this question. We're just going to look at the first 11 chapters. But I'm going to tell you this. Habakkuk wasn't afraid to ask God the big question. Why do you allow suffering? If you fast forward through the book, the answer that he receives from God does not lead to atheism. It leads to worship. His why goes to worship. His how come goes to how awesome are you God? So if you want to go from why to worship, 
how come to how awesome are you, God? You might want to lean in and listen to what God says. Now, it's going to take a couple of chapters to get there. So you got to kind of stick around for the next few weeks. But we're going to start by looking at the first 11 verses. And it starts off as follows. Chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, he then asks a question. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry violence. And you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? It's like I'm sick and tired of seeing all this sin. And why do you idly look at wrong? Lord, you don't seem to be doing anything to intervene. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Consequence? So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Okay, I'm like, did you just write this yesterday? These are the questions I'm asking. Present tense, 2019. He's asking them 612 BC. Now this series of verses essentially surfaces five aspects of the broader question. Why does a good God allow suffering? And there's a couple of them found in verse two. The first one is this. He's essentially asking the first part of the verse. If you set your eyes in the text, why don't you respond? Why don't you, you see it. Why don't you do something? The second part asks the question, why are we as your people being assaulted so much by evil, by sin, by exposure to suffering? And then you get into verse three, first part of it. Why do we have so much exposure to sin? Like, I don't want to see it. I'm trying to live a holy life. Why did I have to see that? I'm trying to live a holy life. Why did I have to hear that? I'm trying to live a holy life. Oh, I wish I hadn't read that article. Why, why, Lord, are you allowing us to be exposed to so much sin? Middle part of the verse asks the question, why don't you stop evil? Which is where the question ultimately is headed. Why don't you stop evil? You're, you're God. You created the world. And then the last part of the verse is a quantity question. Why is there just so much evil and suffering and unrighteousness in this world. And then Habakkuk speaks to the question of justice. Now, before we look once again at verse four, um, I, I don't know how, how often you use the word justice in your daily conversation, if ever. I don't know how much you think about justice. But if you read the prophetic books of our Bible, whether it's the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah or the minor prophets like Amos, Habakkuk. These guys are talking about justice all the time. And in particular, they, they are calling God's people to be agents of justice in an unjust world. So it's like, hey, see that widow over there? Do something to help. See the orphan? Like step up. Be a father to the fatherless. Hey, you know those, those 
foreigners that have kind of come into your country and settled down in the field next door, go help them. The foreigner, the alien, and the stranger in your midst, give them a cup of water. The traveler, invite them in for a meal. Justice is a real big deal to God. And so through the prophets, he's speaking about justice, 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 justice. I want you to be just. I want God's people to be just, be just, be just, be just. And Isaiah's kind of sitting, or Habakkuk is sitting there, and he's kind of like asking the question that everyone's thinking about. He's like, um, oh Lord, if justice is such a big deal to you, why don't you seem to be equally committed to justice? Like, why aren't you crushing the wicked? Why aren't you helping us to be holy by insulating us and isolating us from seeing so much garbage in our world? Why, why do you let your people be abused and attacked and persecuted the way that you do? So he kind of spins the question around. And speaking about justice, a couple points here he mentions. He says the law is, is paralyzed. It's like the, it's so evil. We got codes and laws and police officers and a, a military. And it's like, it doesn't seem to be, be able to do anything. How, how do you have thousands of soldiers and thousands of police officers and thousands of laws and let, yet you still have the most insane sin and evil taking place in our world? It's like the law is paralyzed. He comments on the, the, the observation that the wicked seems to be beating the righteous. They were constantly getting beat up. The righteous are the, the minority, the remnant. The, the wicked seem to be the majority. And then finally, he comments sadly that even when justice does go out, it's all messed up. It's perverted. It's twisted. It's topsy-turvy. The person that tries to take a stand for righteousness, oh, oh, you're a discriminator. You're discriminating. Oh, you don't want to serve this particular special interest group? Well, we're going to shut your business down. We're going to call the Human Rights Tribunal. Justice goes out perverted, and that which is morally right is considered like old-fashioned and wrong and Weird and wacky, but in actual fact, that which is weird and wacky is considered the norm, is considered the truth. Again, I mean, there's some nutty stuff going on in our culture today. But I find it fascinating that Habakkuk was seeing the same kind of stuff, maybe some different expressions, but the same basic concerns were were on his heart and on the hearts of God's people over 2,000 and a half years ago. So we ask the same questions. Think, let's just think a little bit, kind of let this sink in. Let's think a little bit about our own culture, our own circumstances. We could ask questions like, why is it that in Canada, we choose to set aside not tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but millions of dollars every year to correct the behavior of criminals, some of whom have committed horrendous acts against other human beings, to re-educate, to rehabilitate, to correct, and virtually spend virtually zero dollars ministering to those that have been left behind. 
The parent whose heart has been torn out because they've discovered their child has been molested and killed. Look, how do you, how do you find your way in a culture like ours? How, how do you find yourself to a point where the, the criminal is treated with, with greater decency and good than the victims? I have two family members who are corrections officers. Both of them have had PTSD. Both of them have had to take time off work because they've told me straight up. It's like the prisoners are running the institution. You can't do anything. You can't say anything. You can't push back. You can hardly defend yourself. Why is it that in a culture like ours, Police officers are just automatically suspect. Prison guards are automatically suspect. Soldiers are, you know, considered baby killers. Now, of course, in in any occupation, you're going to have bad apples. We get it. But why is it that those that are supposed to be agents of justice and righteousness and protectors of freedoms, well, they're they're just, we we got the derogatory names for them. We poo-poo them. We, we look down on them. They're so often blamed and charged and suspect, whereas, well, the offender is considered innocent even if they've been caught red-handed until proven guilty. And then when proven guilty, it's really not much of a punishment attached to it at all. Why is it that we allow in a culture like ours for unborn babies to be killed and put to death and responsible adults to be considered worthy of absolute freedom to do whatever they want and choose whatever they want in the name of freedom. How far does a culture have to have to drift before People are so depraved and delusional as to be able to stand before entire countries as political leaders and say, that's okay. That's perfectly normal. Like, do you know how many steps you have to take to get there to the point that that's publicly acceptable? That's considered normal. That's considered freedom. That's considered choice. What about the choice that the baby doesn't yet have To be born. It's a wicked world that we live in. Why is it that churches are being bulldozed around our world? Fortunately, not yet in Canada. And Christians are being killed and and you virtually hear not a peep from the UN or CNN. Virtually don't hear anything. Why is it that Procreation theists with earned PhDs are barred from teaching biology or subjects pertaining to the origins of life in our supposedly secular universities where all ideas and all perspectives should be wrestled to the ground. And yet you can teach at our university and not even know what your own gender is. But you're considered, you know, an intellectual, you're considered 
wise enough and intelligent enough and schooled enough to tell us where we came from, but you don't even know what your gender is. And we're like, oh, way to go, Canada. And we got all our freedoms and pluralism. And no, we don't. If you're a person of moral virtue, you're going to the sidelines, buddy. This is the world that we live in. Now, it's, it's true that, and I want you to hear this point like really, really, really clearly. When we study the whole of the Bible, there are actually multiple reasons or hints given as to why suffering exists in the world. Habakkuk is not unlike Job, by the way. And that Job goes through some terrible suffering. There's like 50 chapters or so in the book of Job. And he goes some terrible suffering. He loses his health. He loses the trust of his wife. He loses 10 children dead in a day. Can you imagine that? He loses all of his livestock. In other words, all of his, all of his property, essentially. And then that's, that's just in the first three chapters. And then there's like chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. 40 some odd chapters where his philosopher friends get together and like, hey, Job, uh, I know you're suffering, but we think this is why. And the other guy's like, I don't know. I think, I think this is the reason. And this is the reason. And this is the reason. They go back and forth. And it's very poetic and very philosophical and very fascinating, actually. But at the end of it all, God kind of steps in and, and, you know, pardon my French, but he basically says, hey, guys, you know why I allow suffering? Yeah, why? Just shut up. I'm God you weren't there when I created the world. If I told you, you wouldn't understand anyway. So just trust in me. And amazingly, Job, is essentially, Job essentially says, okay. And he continues to worship God and his wealth is restored. Then we go to the, the lament Psalms. Those Psalms in our Bible, there's a few of them that portray a believer who's going through great trial and strain. And they cry out to God and they ask, why, why? And there's not a single lament psalm in the Bible that gives an answer. But God shows up. In the midst of the pain and suffering, the the presence of God actually overwhelms the question. And the person actually leaves throttled up in their faith. So we have instances like that in the Bible, in Job and in uh, the lament psalms, where either the the presence of God is enough or knowledge of God's sovereignty is enough to kind of like reboot and allow the believer to move forward. Here we have Habakkuk asking a question and we receive one of the many answers in the Bible as to why God allows suffering from the mouth of God. Now I'm stressing this, stressing it, stressing it because if you're going through trial or suffering, I don't want you to leave here and say, well, this must be the reason why I'm suffering. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But you need to hear at least one of the reasons why we suffer so that you can respond if the reason why you're suffering is the root cause that God addresses in this book to Habakkuk. So here it is in a sentence. Sometimes God uses distressing circumstances to refine us. Sometimes God uses distressing circumstances to refine us. That's essentially the message from verse 5 through to verse 11. See, the context is this. 
Remember I said Israel was gone already in the north? They're gone? Judah's still around. If you were to like take a spiritual thermometer and put it in the mouth of Judah, how hot do you think their temperature would be? Lukewarm. Judah had grown soft, sinful, and casual about their faith. Eh. We go to the temple, we worship, we do our thing. We also got our other gods on the side. They were materialists. They were overlooking the causes of the poor. They were just kind of doing their own thing. They'd grown soft, much like many Christians can fall into the trap of today. Maybe in this room, there are Christians that never serve the causes of Christ. They don't put any time into serving the things of God. They may not be generous. You know, they got their allotted time and their talents and their treasures, and that's all for them or their family or their own little empire. That never goes out into the church or the causes of Christ in the community. No sacrifice, no boldness, no absolute commitment, enduring commitment to relationships, especially to marriage. Sadly, I mean, it, it doesn't take, you don't have to be a pastor who serves vocationally in pastoral ministry to see that there is a lot of compromise and a lot of passivity among people today that claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they assess the world around them. Why are these people so bad? Why are they so crazy? Why are they so nutty? Why are they doing all this stuff? And it's like the log in the eye, right? You got this big log in your own eye, but you you can't see it. You can see other people's flaws, but you cannot see your own. The reality is, is that many Christians are no different than secularists, except for a couple hours a month when they're at church. And even that's on the decline. People used to show up more or less every Sunday. Now they say it's like twice a month is a pretty good batting average. Because, oh, God's an absolute priority after, oh, after overtime and after the craft fair that's in town this week and after hockey and, you know, after my vacation and after my yard work and after this and after that and after this and after that, God's an absolute priority. You're like, it doesn't, doesn't look like it. You're not feeding into God's people or being fed by God's people. And God's response to Habakkuk in this whole book is essentially, uh, actually, I'm, I'm not as passive as you might think. I, I'm not as passive as you might think. In fact, a lot of the pain and a lot of the sorrow And a lot of the suffering that I'm permitting in this world is because of God's people being passive. And I am so committed to your sanctification that I will make you suffer. I will make others suffer. And I will expose you to suffering until you humble yourself and choose to be the holy people that I have called you out of darkness to become. That's essentially the message of Habakkuk. So check out verse five. Verse five, at first glance, is kind of an encouraging verse. It says, God says to Habakkuk, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, wouldn't that actually make a great scriptural text for your wall? 
It's like just reminding yourself, God's doing a great work in the world. It's almost like a missionary verse. It's like a great commission verse. We don't think God's working, but God tells us he's working everywhere. Look among the nations. Look to the left. Look to the right. See, I'm doing a wonderful work in your days. It blow your mind. And you're like, oh, that's great, Lord, because I thought you left us behind. So what is it you're doing, Lord? Like, when are you going to kind of break through? When are you going to correct evil and vindicate the righteous? And when are you going to, when are you going to bring truth to bear and all the lies? And when are we going to experience a revival? God's like, oh, let me tell you a little more about what I'm doing among the nations. I never take time off my plan. You might not see it. You might be looking for immediate vindication. Sometimes my vindication is immediate. But I also happen to be using the stuff that you're complaining about to wake up my people and to refine my people. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize buildings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dig- dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Notice how catastrophic their pending victories are being described as. At kings they scoff. Ha! Take anybody down. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress as they pile up earth to take it. Building earthworks to, to capture cities all over the known world. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Like that was not what I was expecting God to say. I'm asking you about suffering, Lord. You give me what appears to be an encouraging statement. That you're actually at work. And now you're telling me your plan is to knock us down with a ferocious enemy that you're sending in our direction. Again, by now, Israel had been taken into captivity for like 150 years by the Assyrians, never to return. Babylon is now bearing down on Judah. And in all of that, the church, we could ask ourselves this question in the modern era. Like, why are there so many icy hearts out there? Why are there so many people that are cold to the things of God? Why are there so many people that are so ice-hearted they they would abort babies and so ice-hearted that they would abuse children and so ice-hearted that they wouldn't punish criminals, but they'd punish law enforcement officers with their passivity? Well, what kind of a world do we live in? Why are there so many icy hearts out there? And essentially the message of Habakkuk is, um, uh, why are there so many lukewarm hearts among people that are supposed to be hot for me? Now this actually is the same message that is delivered centuries later in Revelation. You remember that? God is sending out these messages to various churches. And he comes to the Laodicean church. And his message is, uh, I would actually rather you be hot or cold. But that whole lukewarm thing, well, just a sec. Sorry, I thought I was going to throw up. I would rather spit you out of my mouth. 
Jesus spoke that way often to the Pharisees. You know the guys that had all the religious glam down? The robes, the rituals, the externals. God's like, sorry, I thought I was going to throw up there for a second. God is disgusted with lukewarm. He would rather you be a Babylonian or a diehard believer than be lukewarm. But as was the problem in Israel, so became the problem in Judah. And the people of God had become lukewarm. God sees the hypocrisy. God warns of pending discipline. Sadly, even though this message was delivered a couple decades in advance, they still didn't listen. You know what the response to the sermon was? We're not listening. And so they were taken in 586. Sadly, they had to spend seven decades, 70 years in captivity before they finally learned their lesson. But the good news is, is that after 70 years, in about 516, they started coming back to Israel. And this is, you can read about this in books like uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. And now we have like a very different spiritual climate. Generations later, the people are coming back. And what are they doing? They're swinging the hammer. They're rebuilding the walls. They're fending off attacks from Sanballat and other neighbors that hated their guts. They're like all in. They're pouring their money into building the city of Jerusalem back up. They're taking like punches in the face by their adversaries. There's guys standing in gaps in the wall at night, standing on guard on behalf of the land. It's incredible how persecution awakens God's people. And all of a sudden you have all these people that are absolutely committed to the things of God. But wouldn't it have been like, wouldn't it have been better for them to just learn that in seven or six, 12? Wouldn't that have been better? Wouldn't it be better for God's people to like wake up and be bold, be unafraid to share our faith, to stand for truth, to protect the abused, to strive to live holy lives, Blanketed, of course, in absolute humility. Because I can tell you something about myself. I'm kind of an idiot. I've been walking with Jesus for 40 years. And sometimes I'm like, why are you such an idiot, Aaron? Like, why did you say that? Why did you do that? Why didn't you see that need? I'm just telling you the truth. Now, I would never call you an idiot. But you can call yourself that right now if you'd like. Because it might be that as you assess your own life, you're like, yeah, I, I, can, I can relate. Like, I need to up my game. I need to recommit myself to to holiness. I need to stop being so stupid. You assess and you evaluate, right? That's that's what you're supposed to do. But they didn't do it. It's like in one ear, out the other. Now, if you're a thoughtful person, you probably would follow up with a question something like this. Um, Okay, God, I'm hearing you, but I, I still, there's one little thing that kind of bugs me about all this. Why would you use people worse than us to discipline us, to refine us. Why why would you do that? That still doesn't really compute. So if you're thinking about that question, you have to come back next week. Because the second part, the second complaint or question that Habakkuk asks God is that question. Okay, so maybe we deserve it, but why would you use the Babylonians to discipline your people because they are a nasty, snarly group of people committed to violence and their own gods and their own gain. That question is going to be unpacked in weeks to come.
But for now, here's what we need to know. He does. God does use the wicked to refine the righteous who aren't living righteously. God does. God disciplines us and awakens us to our need because we can be so passive. And sometimes I do wonder, even as I, I'm angry with what's taking place in our society, I'm frustrated. I try to preach hard into it. I'm also aware of my own weaknesses. Sometimes I wonder, maybe, maybe the light at the end of the tunnel is this. It continues to get worse, but God's people step up and become more passionate and more bold and more courageous and more committed to holiness. And if that were to happen, I, I think we could argue that that would be a good and redemptive outcome. So here are some lessons for us to take home. First truth is never forget we need sanctifying. We need to be more holy than we are now. None of us have arrived, even the most holy person in the room. None of us have arrived. We all need to grow up. We all need to become a little bit more like Jesus. And God is so committed to your growth and holiness that sometimes he will allow you to be exposed to great suffering and great evil to wake you up so that you might count the cost of following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is relentless in his desire for us to be holy. You know what? Even when we're not, even when I'm like, I don't care. I ain't responding. God's like, no, okay, I guess I lost that one. I'm going to go home. I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tighten the screws. I'm going to make your life difficult. That's how committed God is to our sanctification. He will expose us to horrendous evil to waken us up to our need for him. Third, when you pray for vindication, make sure you're living in victory first. So asking the question that Habakkuk asked, it's legitimate, we're going to ask. But maybe there's a question you should be asking before that. Hey, Lord, I got this question for you. It's about suffering. But before we go there, I just, I just want to ask, is there anything in my life that you're seeing that's not cool? Or you might already be aware of it because you probably are. And you ask that the Lord would give you victory over that so that you might walk in righteousness before the Lord. Fourth, when you see evil, ask, what is God trying to teach his people? Greater dependence, greater reliance, that the Christian life works. What is God trying to teach you as you experience temptation and trial? And then we'll have to get a little further into the book to fully see this, especially in chapter three, but I'll just tell you in advance because I read the whole thing. Know this, we'll end on some good news. God is not trying to eternally crush you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. He's not trying to condemn his people. He's not trying to crush you. But in his, his ultimate plan is to redeem you and restore you the holiness and Christ-likeness. And so he often uses the wickedness, not the only reason why there's suffering in our world, but it's one reason why God often allows suffering, exposes us to great evil, great threats, because he wants us to stand up and be counted for him. So as I ask God the question, Lord, let's ask this together. Lord, why do you allow evil? We just kind of listen. Lord, why, why do you allow evil? 
the message we're receiving right now is uh, actually I'm allowing it because of you. You're the reason. You're the reason. Really? I'm the reason? Yeah, you're the reason. Because you're not yet fully committed to following in my footsteps. I'm like, okay. Well, that's one I can respond to. Not responsible for everybody else, but that's what I'm going to listen to. I'm going to pursue the things of God, work hard to be a man of righteousness, and when I fall down, I'm going to confess, and I'm going to get back up. And I'm going to seek to do that which brings great glory and honor to the Lord.